I am absolutely delighted to be here today with Matt Siegel of Footnotes to Plato. At least that's the way I know you. <laughs> you have a you have a blog or a website called Footnotes to Plato. And then yep. you also show up on Twitter quite frequently with provocative things. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. And recently you had a long conversation with John Verbeke. Mm -hmm. And uh, really great, which I will put in the comments. And you've also written a number of books. Would you like to say the names of the books that you've written for people? Sure. Uh, well, great to be here with you, Karen. Um, yeah, I've written a couple of books. Um, one, um, maybe eight years ago on the German idealist Friedrich Schelling called Philosophy in a Time of Emergency, um, the reemergence of Schelling. And then more recently, a book on Alfred North Whitehead that's called Physics of the World's Soul, Whitehead's Adventure in Cosmology. And, um, you know, a couple other little things, but uh, I'm working on um, a new book that uh, will look at the place of human consciousness in uh, cosmological evolution. So basically, where did we come from and how did we get here, mm -hmm. uh, which will tie together a lot of um, the ideas I've developed in earlier books. So That's know. really exciting. When When is that going to be released? Um, I'll have to write it first. I have, I have like 80 pages and, uh, hope to finish it by the end of this year. So, uh, maybe sometime next year. Yeah. Well, so just out of curiosity, what is your, um, what is your writing strategy? Your, I mean, how do you schedule your time to actually get things written? Because obviously you're busy with a lot of other things as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel blessed to be, um, able to engage in uh, a scholarly uh, life um, for my for my work <laughs> uh, and I teach but um, writing is still a mystery to me I mean I love it um, but it's it's a labor it, like like there's there's a suffering involved in birthing yeah. uh, <laughs> ideas and articulating them in a in a, a way that will be um, digestible to others and so um, I am lucky enough to have a sabbatical uh, my first sabbatical as a professor this fall and so uh, that certainly helps uh, focus on writing without having to you know teach um, a full course load but. You know, generally speaking, I fit it in when I can, and um, you know, the blessing of of being a professor, at least for me, and maybe it's not true for all academics, but um, this isn't so much work for me as it is play, and so in that spirit, you know, in a playful spirit, it's much easier to, um, you know, get uh, get some writing done because it doesn't feel like an obligation. It feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't hurt to have deadlines, <laughs> but, um, you know, well, do you make deadlines for yourself? I try to though. Um, you know, you probably know that the creative process, uh, doesn't always obey our, um, you know, calendar, uh, systems and, um, can't easily be scheduled. So, but it does help to have a little bit of pressure, um, because otherwise I can sort of stay in that inchoate space of imagining what I'd like to write a little bit longer than really is necessary. Um, though generally when I know 
you know, it's time to write a new book. Um, I can't contain the, uh, the excitement and it spills out onto the page. So, um, I, I have much the same experience with painting because <clears throat> I actually haven't painted now for a year and a half, maybe because I've been so involved with this channel, but, um, at one point I thought I want to write a book about all the paintings I never painted <laughs> <laughs> that were just in that inchoate, you know, imaginal stage because I could picture them in my mind's eye, but I, but, but for me, one of the things about painting is that if I, if I don't have a process where I just paint every day, even if I'm not producing anything useful, <clears throat> I'm at least learning about myself and learning about my process and I'm making some sort of progress by doing it every day then if I'm just trying to think of what would be the best painting I could do and wait until I get the aha moment, I never paint. So, mm, Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting um, as a writer, uh, a lot of people complain about Twitter, often on Twitter, uh, that it's distracting <laughs> them. I'm uh, guilty of that. <laughs> but for me, I love to sort of beta test ideas. Um on Twitter and it's almost like a daily writing habit. You know, I have some ideas that are kind of, you know, only half formed and I'll throw them out um, on Twitter and, and try to provoke people and see um, where the holes are in, in these conceptions and then refine them, you know? So it's like real time peer review. Um, and, you know, over time you try to build up a, a network of people who give uh, constructive feedback um, and you kind of ignore the ones who aren't really interested in, dialogue. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice way to, um, engage in a daily sort of writing practice, uh, rather than thinking of it as a distraction though, it can sometimes uh, become that as well. Well, I mean, there, there is something great about Twitter in helping you to refine ideas down to the kernel. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's been good for me. But the thing that's bad for me is that when I do get into a conversation with somebody, it's really fascinating to me. So then the, the notification comes in, oh, they responded, and then I respond. And then the notification, and these notifications, just when I'm deep in something else that I'm supposed to be working on, and my brain is right there, and I'm about to come up with this great aha thing that I'm going to do, and then the notification, and then I get distracted over here to Twitter. So Mm -hmm. I've been really thinking maybe I just need to cut the thread on Twitter, give up <laughs> on it altogether. But it's yeah. a great place to meet people. I never would have met you if it hadn't been Twitter. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. so, okay, well, I wanted to throw at you a, a question really quick um, before. So the way I want to proceed today is to have you answer this one question first, and then I want you to tell me a little bit about your life story. And then I want to discuss with you some more of these ideas about Alfred North Whitehead and, and art and uh, the article that you wrote on your, your website called The Universe as a Work of Art, Images of the Cosmos in Plato, Descartes, and Kepler. Mm -hmm. So, so as just a teaser, let's talk about Descartes for a minute, because he comes up in all these conversations about what happened to the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's blamed for a lot of things. And I heard you in your conversation with John uh, Verveke talk about how you felt like maybe Descartes' intentions in the beginning were quite different than the way they have been utilized by people. And that you felt that in one sense, he was just trying to save the appearances. Hmm. And that's a phrase we've talked about quite a bit on my channel, talking about Barfield. And um, 
Barfield mentioned that whole historical thing about the early astronomers and the saving the appearances. And I wondered if you could just reflect back on that conversation with John and see if you could remember what it was you had said so that you could share it with my viewers. Um, it's been uh, it's been a little while since John and I spoke, um, probably last year. We've had two conversations on, on YouTube. And so I don't remember the exact context, though I do, um, I can say that uh, poor Descartes does often get blamed for everything that's wrong uh, with the modern world, whether it's uh, this uh, notion of a, of a substantial self, the ego that, uh, you know, especially like new age spiritual types are always um, upset about, or it's his idea of nature as uh, merely uh, mechanical. Um, but if you put Descartes back in his time and place, in his historical moment, um, you know, he's writing in the in the 1600s, um, a lot of his important work, um, enduring work comes uh, after the 30 years war is, is, is wrapping up, religious war, right? And so he's searching for uh, a, f a form of a method really um, to arrive at truth that everyone, regardless of whether they were Catholic or Protestant or whatever, um, could agree to. And it was the basis of uh, what we now call the scientific method. And it, um, you know, drew upon mathematics, which is supposed to be a universal language. And so his um, philosophical method was, was really a, uh, an urgent call for a new uh, way that um, people across Europe could cooperate uh, in search of knowledge, which would aid us in, um, uh, you know, living well in the context of a natural world, which turns out we can understand um, and we can manipulate and uh, reverse engineer, as it were. And of course, um, Descartes had. Uh, too simple-minded an understanding of what nature is. However, it's also clear that um, technology has advanced tremendously since his day, more or less using the same method that, that he uh, articulated. And so um, when it comes to saving the appearances, though, I think Descartes, you know, again, I, I don't remember exactly what I said uh, in the conversation with John, but I would say... Descartes breaks with this um, ancient uh, tradition of saving the appearances in the sense that um, he was content to uh, dismiss our, our sensory experience, how the world appears to us, uh, as a kind of um, a kind of illusion and that to understand the world, truly and accurately, we need to use our intellect and we need to resolve everything into measurable quantities, right? And so, you know, whereas um, in, the, in the ancient world and um, in a more participatory mode of consciousness, we want to see the appearances as meaningful and uh, as not something that can just be jettisoned in favor of some underlying reality which would be behind the appearances. The appearances themselves um, you know, and when, when the ancients looked at the sky, they knew they were looking at an appearance, but the appearance was symbolic of something. 
right? And this, I think, is how Barfield is um, trying to to talk about the, you know, the importance of what he called final participation, where um, it's not original participation, where we're sort of immersed in this realm of images and myth, but uh, differentiated and able to consciously participate so as to, um, as the ancients used to say, read the book of nature, to see the appearances as symbols with meaning um, that indicate some higher higher truth. I think Descartes is in some ways breaking from that tradition, severing sensory well, experience from mind. Let me add one little thing in here that I think mm. might be pertinent. Um, because there was another aspect of saving the appearances and maybe it's a, maybe it's a different phrase than saving the appearances, but I think it's Pierre Duhem that talks about when he does his history of science that some of the early astronomers that were willing to accept these weird epicycles and so forth because they 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 didn't yet understand that that the orbits were elliptical and they because they didn't have the telescope that they actually came up with those epicycles as a way to. Um, kind of put a placeholder. It's as though they were searching for truth. They knew they hadn't come to the ultimate truth and they were not, um, mm. Yeah. They, they still wanted to um, save the possibility for future generations to see what they saw. And so they come up with some sort of a system that will describe it, even though it's not you know, technically correct, but it's a method of saving the appearances. Yeah, that, that was kind of what I had heard. Um, that that's what that phrase meant. And so I thought maybe that that was partly why Descartes came up with his very mathematical system that he was observing something about reality, and he wanted to describe what it was he was seeing as a way of saving the appearances. <laughs> for for what might come afterwards rather than just coming up with something and saying it's this way it's static we're going to jettison everything else and we're going to accept this new thing mm -hmm. right does that make any sense yeah well i mean let's briefly just rehearse this history of astronomy right uh ptolemy one of the most famous pre-copernican astronomers mm -hmm. developed a geocentric model that had all these uh it was circles upon circles, right? Mm -hmm. With deference and epicycles in an attempt to come up with a, a model that could save the appearances in the sense that um, the retrograde motions of the planets could be explained geometrically using this uh, abstract model. And this abstract model that Ptolemy devised with the Earth at the center, uh, as complicated as it was, made pretty good predictions. In fact, um, better predictions than Copernicus's model that put the sun at the center because initially Copernicus didn't include the elliptical orbits of the planets, as you're saying. Okay, which, that, that's what it was, yeah. Um, and so that, that took Kepler's uh, genius. But um, for Ptolemy and even for Copernicus, maybe, though it's not exactly clear, um, one of, a friend of Copernicus's who, who published um, uh, on the revolutions of the heavenly bodies after Copernicus died, added this preface that made it seem like Copernicus was not uh, offering a theory for how the universe really was, but rather just a new model 
to help the church perfect its ritual calendar. Um, Ptolemy was quite clear that this um, elaborate model with epicycles and everything wasn't how the heavens really worked. Mm. Um, the ancients were more humble in the sense that they accepted, you know, God's ways are mysterious. Um, but we have minds and we can come up with models that are useful, right? Predictive. Um, and so Ptolemy was content to save the appearances and wasn't claiming that this is reality. With Descartes and with, you know, the rise of modern science, uh, that humility goes out the window. Um, the idea was then, note, the universe really is mechanistic. Our models of the solar system are in fact how the planets are moving in reality, not just in a way that's useful for us to make predictions. And so, you know, whereas Ptolemy's model is quite mechanistic, um, and you could say that that's continuous with what Descartes was trying to do in his accounts of nature, Descartes was saying, no, nature really is mechanistic, right? It's not just a useful model. And so that's the break with this tradition, which attempted to save the appearances, as I would understand it. Um, it takes, and you know, this is a, to jump ahead a bit to Whitehead, um, in the modern period, post Descartes, post this dualism uh, between mind and matter, and, and after this um, bifurcation between uh, our qualitative experience of the world as apprehended through our senses and our quantitative understanding of it as, you know, calculated mathematically, Whitehead's trying to overcome that bifurcation of nature and return to, a, a, in a sense, an approach to natural philosophy, which would save the appearances um, in that it's not um, bifurcating or separating uh, the way the world appears to us and the way the world actually is. It's trying to bring those two back together, right, in a more complex way than, than what the ancients assumed, but nonetheless, um, to find some integral vision of, of reality that wouldn't sever us uh, down the middle, as it were. So this, I guess, comes back to where you were talking with John about a way to bring reason and reality into mm -hmm. some sort of concordance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, before we get there, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd like to hear your backstory. Sure. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in South Florida uh, on the East Coast, um, a town called Hollywood, which uh, was um, sort of a early suburb in the post-war period um, sprang up in the in the 1950s, modeled after Hollywood, California, with palm trees lining the boulevards and everything. Um, nice place to grow up, close to the beach, um, and uh, went to college, um, did my undergrad in Orlando, Florida, at the University of Central Florida, studied cognitive science there. And um, Okay, so you can't just do that. When you were okay, growing up, whatever <laughs> made you think that you wanted to study cognitive science? I mean, what happened while you were growing up that gave you that direction? Well, it wasn't my first major. Um, so <laughs> I think I was always kind of philosophically minded. Um, I often would find myself, you know, as a kid, uh, hanging out with the adults and, and talking and um I really became kind of almost almost addicted to reading um, in high school. Not initially, maybe 10th grade, when um, I read uh, a book by Joseph Heller, uh, Catch-22, mm -hmm. about World War II and how absurd it was. And it just 
not only did it hook me on reading and hook me on history and like trying to understand like how did human beings get to this place and like just as i learned more about history all this crazy stuff that's happened which you know had i not been reading about it i was kind of sh shielded and protected from in my childhood existence you know everything was pretty much okay no major traumas as a kid um just grew up in this pretty calm suburb um playing youth sports and 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 what have you and so um i got hooked on reading wanted to learn history discovered uh i think you know a book on existentialism um drew me into philosophy proper but uh i got exposed in high school to some um jungian psychology wow. uh and um eastern eastern religion and spirituality like through Alan Watts and DT Suzuki and others like that. And then, um, yeah, I was just off and running. But uh, when I started college, my major was journalism. I wanted to be an investigative journalist or, you know, work for National Geographic and go, you know, to these exotic places around the world and, and find people whose stories were interesting. And, um, but uh, journalism, was not what I imagined when I started taking the courses. And then so I switched over to philosophy, which was quite interesting to me. My parents didn't want me to do that, but um, I kind of bracketed the idea of what I will do with this when I graduate. Um, but after a while, the philosophy courses got a little boring. I was interested in science and, and neuros, neuros, neuroscience in particular. and. Um, so cognitive science was a way of kind of being very interdisciplinary, not having to specialize too much because it draws on, um, yeah, philosophy, but also the natural sciences, computer science, linguistics, uh, anthropology. And so I got to take courses all over the place. Um, but I was really interested in consciousness. Um, and you know was experimenting with psychedelics in college and um reading about like zen buddhism and really searching for um a kind of satori experience i wanted to be enlightened you know and um and just engage in an exploration of consciousness in an experiential way and there wasn't much room for that in my undergraduate study of cognitive science. Consciousness was only just beginning. This would have been the early 2000s. It was only just beginning to be taken seriously as a academic subject. Um, that's changed now. I think it's very yeah, much I mean, at it's the hard forefront. To even, hard to even remember that there was ever a time when it wasn't like the hot topic. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that gets me up to my undergrad years. And um from that point, you know, I knew I wanted to go on to graduate school, but I wasn't exactly sure where because I wanted to study consciousness, right? And so the University of Central Florida had a master's program in CogSci that I could have continued on into. But um, I ended up um, sort of taking a year off to figure it out and thought, okay, maybe I'll go into, I knew I wanted to be either a teacher or a therapist. Um, and I ended up applying to a couple different schools. And um, one of those was uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, where I now teach, which um, I discovered after the fact, uh, all of the really 
important books that um, influenced me deeply that I had been reading, just wandering through, you know, UCF's library, um, picking books off the shelf from the psychology section or the philosophy section. I'd read books by people like Richard Tarnas and Brian Swim and Stanislav Grof. And uh, it turned out that um, all these people were teaching in this program uh, in San Francisco. And um, so I decided to take a risk and move across the country and um, start a new life on the West Coast. And um, it worked out pretty well. <laughs> So you did your, your master's and your doctorate there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Finished my doctorate in 2016 and uh, had a kind of circuitous path uh, into the faculty. You know, was, I was working in administration in the provost's office for several years, um, which I'm told I'm good at, but I, do, I did not enjoy. Um, it's just, uh, you know, obviously spreadsheets and scheduling and uh putting fires out in the bureaucracy of of uh this little graduate school wasn't exactly where my passion lied uh <laughs> lay so um but you know i put in my um i put in some hard work there and eventually um helped the program uh, by designing and launching an online degree program uh, this was before COVID. This was in 2017. And um, there aren't that many online philosophy graduate programs uh, in the world. Um, there are more and more now. I've obviously post COVID, pretty much everything mm -hmm. has at least um, offered a, a, an option online. But um, we were prepared for COVID because we had those online programs and I was uh, hired to kind of uh, shepherd those, those programs along. And um, you know, now I teach in a graduate program that has students um, all over the world, and it's it's quite um, you know planetary uh, in its in its approach. Uh, so it's really exciting to have such a diversity of students in the classroom um, studying ideas that um, I think are important, not just intellectually or, or academically, but um, that I think are are relevant and and uh, urgently needed in our world so mm -hmm. well so i know that one of the things that you talk about a lot um well maybe i should start with this this is probably a really stupid question but could you give a brief overview of white hoods whitehead's um thought um i know that that he had a great breadth of thought and he wrote a lot and some of it is pretty um, obtuse, but if you could just kind of maybe briefly do three or four minutes on Whitehead and then I might know better where to start. Yeah. So Whitehead uh, starts as a Cambridge mathematician. Um, he taught at Cambridge from 1880 or thereabouts, 1885 until 1910. Um, he one of his students was Bertrand Russell, the famous British philosopher um, who uh, collaborated with Whitehead on the Principia Mathematica, which was this attempt to um, establish the foundations of mathematics. Is that the book where they prove that one plus one equals two? That's a joke Whitehead makes later uh, <laughs> that it took them 300 pages to establish that indeed one plus one equals two. 
Um, I think we need him today to prove that two plus two equals four. <laughs> right. These are still perennial issues, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, but the, you know, the, the universality of mathematics um, and the, the form of knowledge that it can produce is quite mysterious. Um, and Whitehead was interested in logically grounding that truth. And it's not that um, mathematics is still not taken seriously as, as our closest point of access to such truth, but the project failed, right? And so, you know, Whitehead, um, as a result of the paradoxes that they ran into in that book, um, migrated out of just pure mathematics into uh, physics. Um, this was in the 1910s, and um, Einstein's name was was starting to be uh, become more um, well known as a result of his special and general theories of relativity. Whitehead was um, trying to think through the relationship between space and time and matter and energy uh, right alongside Einstein and other physicists who recognized that a revolution, a paradigm shift was afoot. And um, in 1919, when um, the uh, expedition um, led by Arthur Eddington to uh, observe the eclipse in order to test Einstein's theory about light bending around the sun, um, when that uh, those photographic plates were revealed um, at the uh, Royal Academy in, in London, Whitehead was present. Um, Einstein became world famous overnight as a result of this confirmation of his prediction. And this really set Whitehead off um, into the philosophy of nature and metaphysics proper. And he wrote a number of books in the early 1920s. Um, that were attempting to sort of engage Einstein in his philosophical presuppositions. And um, the two of them, you know, discussed this face to face a few times. Um, uh, it was it was a hot topic. Uh, you know, the, the French philosopher um, Henri Bergson had a de little debate with Einstein about how to interpret his new understanding of space and time. And there's a lot of controversy, but that's sort of now um, forgotten and Einstein is championed as this great genius, which he was. Um, but there's there's more to the story about how we understand the nature of the universe. And so, um, you know, Whitehead accepted much of relativity, but went into the deeper metaphysical presuppositions of natural science and, and physics and biology and um, was invited to Harvard in 1924 to teach philosophy. And it was uh, he says in his first lecture at Harvard that um, this is also his first class in philosophy. <laughs> uh, he was never formally trained in philosophy, though obviously read widely, and has this deep appreciation for the history of philosophy. Um, he has a way of uh, engaging in that history um, in a very constructive way where he pulls out, in a way, what all the major figures, whether they're empiricists or rationalists or idealists or materialists, he pulls out scattered insights in their writing um, that are that he feels are true and accurate. And so he's in a way um, saying everybody was right about something, but not about everything. And he has this real integrative um, way of uh, engaging in philosophy. So at Harvard, he writes all his famous books, starting with Science in the Modern World, and then process and reality and adventures of ideas later. 
and he's articulating um, what he called the philosophy of organism, which is an organic conception of the universe meant to replace the old mechanistic understanding of the universe, which birthed modern science. Uh, and in effect, he's saying that science itself has undermined its own um, original ontology, its own conception of what nature ultimately is, namely a collection of parts obeying fixed laws. Whitehead says there are no parts, separate parts in nature. Nature is composed of interrelated wholes. It's wholes all the way down if you want. Mm -hmm. And then the really interesting um, claim that he makes is that experience, uh, which we know most intimately in our own case as conscious human beings, that in some sense experience goes all the way down. Uh, even photons, electrons, atoms mm -hmm. uh, have a perspective on the world. There's something it is like to be an atom as a vibratory frequency of energy. Uh -huh. um, and so what he allows us to do is see the human and our human experience um, as a, an example of, or an exemplification of um, the processes of nature um, all the way down, right? So rather than our human consciousness being some exception to the way that the rest of nature is, our human experience becomes a window into physical process at whatever scale it's occurring. So it's a totally new method, a totally new way of doing natural philosophy and ultimately science. And um, of late, I think it's safe to say there's a bit of a whitehead renaissance underway, a lot of um, philosophers, but really people beyond just philosophy um, art artists, designers, ecological thinkers, um, sociologists, a lot of people are interested in applying Whitehead's ideas to their discipline because it's so um, consonant with this general shift towards a more, um, more ecological awareness, more of a sense of human beings as uh, uh, part of nature rather than somehow hovering above it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's Whitehead in a, in a nutshell. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that that's fantastic. That that's why Whitehead appealed to me, I guess, because a lot of those things that you're talking about are things that I saw through my experience of developing a creative process to do art. Mm. And um, so that gets us back to this article that you wrote, The Universe as a Work of Art. Yeah. And at the very beginning, you say that John Dewey defines imagination not as a specific faculty alongside other faculties, but as that which holds all other elements in solution. Hmm. And uh, I'm just going to take a minute to unpack that the way I see what it's saying. <clears throat> and he may be using imagination differently than I'm using imagination, but when I think of that word, I think of... Uh, <clears throat> Kind of like McGilchrist's idea that the right hemisphere has access to something that the left hemisphere does not have access to, mm -hmm. and that that something is is uh, essential to the creative process, and having that kind of awareness is essential to the creative process, and that 
the way that I learned about creativity was that um, not by being taught a particular process of painting, but by being taught a particular way of seeing. And, um, hmm. and that way of seeing was informed by an understanding of what has been observed throughout all centuries as people have seen art that has appealed to them, that has spoken to them of beauty or meaning or purpose. All of that art has within it a certain set of elements that make up the work itself, and then a certain set of principles that sort of interpret the elements or that uh, <clears throat> create opportunities for the elements to be visually fascinating and to draw the eye and to create meaning. Mm -hmm. So those elements are just the simple things you see in any painting, line and size and shape and direction and color and texture and uh, value. <clears throat> value meaning, <clears throat> sorry, value meaning dark or light. Mm. But, um, but you also see those elements any place that you look in the universe. <laughs> you see those things, right? So, mm -hmm. and then the principles are um, really this, for me, a kind of a matrix of flexibility of, of how you can get a maximal mileage out of every single one of those elements. Hmm. And so the principles are unity, variety, harmony, contrast, repetition, variation, gradation, and balance. And I've discovered since then, looking back at Goethe, looking back at some of Whitehead's work, that these are things that they were talking about as well, because that that allows for this maximum flexibility within the universe without it having to be deterministic and static. It, it allows for this freedom to take place, mm -hmm. but that freedom is also based in a stability around the elements themselves and the substrate on, on which the elements are operating. Mm -hmm. But um, when the artist works, the artist is has a vision or the artist is trying to represent something that they can see, I, either seeing it visually, a thing that they're looking at, or seeing it in their imagination, both ways you can paint. But then when you have this internalization of these elements and principles, when you begin to work, you're not thinking about those things so much. It's more like learning scales on a piano. You don't think about the scales when you're actually playing the symphony. But if you hadn't learned the scales, you wouldn't be able to play the symphony. Mm -hmm. So what it basically does is it frees you up. It uh, frees you up to, to just continue accessing this right hemisphere vision that you have and to continue to create. So there's this continual flow of this creative impulse through the hands onto the paper with the paint and... So in a way, the paint speaks back to you. The paint may be creating patterns on the paper that are somewhat chaotic or random in, in their look. But then, then as the artist continues to look and see, then patterns arise out of that. And then images arise out of those patterns. And so you get a much more um, evocative image than you would get if you were simply trying to recreate a photograph on the on the paper mm -hmm. 
So that's kind of the way I look at the difference between determinism and free will. Mm -hmm. the, the, the photographic specialist who can recreate a photograph on paper and paint, I mean, that's a tremendous skill. There's no question about it. And you have to be a, a wonderful artist to do that. But but you can also go this other route where, where it's strictly completely creative um, work that's happening, holding the elements in solution through imagination. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I really like that quote from Dewey. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, that, I mean, it just, uh, you know, your wonderful account of um, the, the artistic um, palette as it were and everything that goes into being able to create and recognize beauty um dovetails perfectly with with whitehead's whole picture of reality um for him and this is part of how he saves the appearances by bringing uh our aesthetic uh experience back together with our um our understanding our, our intellectual reflection because for him ultimately reality is um, an aesthetic achievement for something to be real for whitehead in the concrete sense uh, means for some aesthetic that is some aesthetic synthesis has been achieved um, and so he, when he you know he uses a lot of these terms that you're talking about um, contrast and repetition and pattern to understand the way that um, perception is uh, uh, a process of um, synthesizing elements available in 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 the past of any given experience and allowing them to grow together and become um, harmonized and where there's any conflicts they can be transformed into contrasts uh, and become part of this more complex whole and um, you know for whitehead beauty is the ultimate aim of the universe. He says beauty is the teleology of the universe. Mm -hmm. And beauty is intensified when more diversity can be held uh, in harmony, right? Where more uh, what would be conflicts, aesthetic conflicts, uh, are um, brought under contrast and so uh, integrated into some more complex whole. And every at every scale of the process of nature, whether we're talking about um, the harmonic frequency that holds together a proton and an electron in a hydrogen atom, or the, um, the balance between gravitation and uh, a sort of um, nucleosynthesis occurring in, this, in the core of stars that, that creates that um, star, uh, or, or the balance thermodynamically of the metabolism that keeps an organism alive. Mm -hmm. These are all aesthetic achievements in Whitehead's view, and they're about balancing contrasts. And the yep. thing is, you know, Whitehead's a process thinker, and creativity is his ultimate principle. And every, every form of beauty which is achieved... Uh, can be enjoyed in the present and there's a kind of eternity in that enjoyment but everything created perishes and so he talks about um, reality having this character of perpetual perishing but in his view um, the highest form of beauty is tragedy uh, where you appreciate what's been achieved because you know it won't last uh, it will perish um, and yet 
we remember. Um, and, you know, nothing in Whitehead's universe, though it perishes, is ever lost fully. And, and this starts to get into his theology, um, where God is kind of like the tragic poet of the world, uh, who isn't able to control and determine everything that happens, but nonetheless beckons or goads or lures all finite creatures toward that beauty, which is possible for them to realize in their finite situation with their finite capacities. And so over the course of time, you know, though any finite beauty, which is achieved will perish. There's a kind of building up of, um, a story if you want, um, or an epic poem, um, that when we are capable of appreciating it, just reveals the glory of God. Right. Um, I wonder if I could just interject a second, yep. because does he actually say that God isn't able to accomplish his purposes or does he, um, because that's completely consonant with my viewpoint would, would be that God is able to do any of these things, but he chooses to give us the freedom. He, he chooses to allow his creation, the freedom to um to pursue to pursue beauty but along along um an infinite possible number of pathways that there's not just one way to that pursuit and when that pursuit maybe starts going down a wrong pathway he's he's generous and kind enough to present an obstacle in the path that will teach us something <laughs> Sometimes that obstacle may be a small thing. Sometimes it may be a looming, large, very difficult thing. But those obstacles are all gifts because they're perfectly crafted to our need at the moment, to what we need to learn in order to move further along this path towards beauty. Hmm. That, that's kind of the way I see things. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, um, there's enough wiggle room in, in Whitehead's theology to um, make it compatible with a view like that, though generally process theologians uh, will say that Whitehead's God is not omnipotent um, in the sense that God could intervene in um, the natural course of events to change what's going to happen, or that if God wanted to, um, God could assure that beauty was realized in every instance. Whitehead says that God is a creature of creativity. So his ultimate principle is not God, but creativity itself, which is just this, he calls it the principle of unrest, right? It's, um, there's nothing, creativity, he says, it's the universal of universals. And so in one sense, it's super abstract, but in another sense, you can never find something that's not an example of it, including God. So God, though, is different from all other instances of creativity because God's primordial. God is the first creature. And as the first creature, God sort of sets the tone for the rest of creation to unfold. But finite creatures uh, have the freedom to, to decide how they want to realize themselves. Um, and they aren't controlled by God, though Whitehead says God's, God's role in the creative advance of nature is to hold up to each creature a mirror, which shows to that creature 
its own potential greatness. And given that we do live in a pretty um, organized, beautiful universe, I mean, there's chaos too, but there's enough order and organization that we're here to reflect upon the fact, right? And so more often than not, creatures do follow that, Whitehead calls it the initial aim, right? This mirror held up to each creature to say, this is what you can accomplish in this moment. Mm -hmm. More often than not, creatures will follow that aim, but um, as creatures become more complex and you get to the human being, creativity can then be called freedom kind of moral freedom, which seems to be um, more or less unique to, to the human, right? We have this problem of good and evil to deal with, which... Well, let's explore that for a second, because yeah. when you're talking about holding up the mirror, I immediately got this picture of... I don't know, did you get a chance to hear the conversation between John Verveke and Michael Levin? I listened to some of it, yeah. Okay, well, so in that conversation, Michael Levin acknowledged... It, He's a, a great believer in teleology, but he's thinking of teleology from a strictly technological viewpoint and not, not the way that you usually discuss teleology. Mm -hmm. but, um, but he and John were talking about the um, Levin's research into, for example, <clears throat> when, uh, when you have a group of undifferentiated cells and they start communicating with each other, they're telling each other, you have to go over there and build an eye, you go over there and build an arm because the DNA itself does not tell them placement of these body parts. It just has within it, the subroutines that describe the proteins that need to be made in order to produce these body parts, but not where. And his research has indicated that they figure out where by talking to each other through these bioelectric signals. Mm -hmm. So they go over there and they start building an arm. But he said the really mysterious thing is they know when to stop. They know when they've gotten to the ultimate arm. And, and if you think of the bilateral that you have a left and a right arm, both arms turn out the same size and they, they stop. And what is it that makes them stop? Because there are also oncogenes or cancer cells that will, that will, uh, pull themselves away from the electrical network, sever the electrical network so that they're on their own, so they can do their own thing. And then they don't stop. They just keep growing. That's what differentiates a cancer cell from any other cell. They don't know when to stop. Mm -hmm. And so it almost sounds as though this, um, this holding up the mirror goes all the way down mm -hmm. to, to the cell level, to the formation of of body parts to the formation of, of organisms. Yeah. Um, but it is also possible to disengage from that plan. Mm -hmm. there, there is a plan of what, the, what that beauty could become. And it seems that outside of the human realm, most organisms follow that plan unless something like cancer intervenes. Um, but humans, obviously, we have our own idea of what we want. So you can hold a mirror up to us, but it's like, hell no, I'm not going to be that thing. You know, I'm, I'm going to go over here and do my own thing. And uh, that's where we get into trouble. Right, right. And, I, you know, cancer has always been around, but I think to some extent, um, the human uh, hubris in our um, 
you know, manufacturing of tens of thousands of chemicals which have never existed on the planet before play some role yes, in throwing definitely. these cells off, yeah. off target. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because those chemical because the, the bioelectric signals can be affected by chemical yeah. you know, intrusions. Right. So let me throw another thing out here. Um, I was listening to a clip from Bishop Barron talking to Lex Friedman. Uh-huh. And he was talking about the the essence of being. You talked about Whitehead thinking that mm. God is a creature of creativity. So yeah. he's a creature among creatures, or is he somehow in essence different? But um, what Bishop Barron says when he's talking about na the nature of God is he says, um, I'll just throw out a few quotes from it. Mm -hmm. Everything in our experience is a being of some type. And to be a being is to be existence received according to the mode of some essence. But God is the reason there is a contingent realm at all. The being of this thing or that thing, of galaxies or of subatomic particles, would be analogous to God's manner of being, which I take to mean that anything that we look at in the universe can teach us something about God's manner of being. <clears throat> if we look deeply enough. Yeah. And then he says, um, beings are competitive with each other, mm -hmm. meaning they can't be in the same place at the same time. Two beings are, not, are, are mutually exclusive. But God is not a competitive being in the world. So God can come close and um, actually be with us. And we, we can be, still become fully alive. He was talking there about <clears throat> Moses' yeah. experience with the burning bush, mm -hmm. that the bush can be burning with the fire of God and still be the bush because God is not a competitive being. So he, he differentiates God from all mm -hmm. other beings in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, traditional um, scholastic theology, like in, in Aquinas uh, would, would say like God's essence is God's existence and that there's something um, transcendent about the divine nature such that, as you're saying, God's not in competition with any finite creature. And so to some extent, Whitehead's fully on board with that. God as a creature is still infinite um, and perfect, Whitehead would say. And um, Whitehead's a panentheist, which is to say he thinks that God is in the world and the world is in God and the world, mm -hmm. Whitehead says, transcends God just as much as God transcends the world. And so mm -hmm. he, he is trying to bring some degree of parity, let's say, to God and the world. He doesn't want the world to take on some diminished status. And he's also, in a way, saying that God needs the world, that the world... So he's there's a process theologian um, named Catherine Keller, uh, who's written some wonderful books about... Um, Whitehead's challenge to the traditional doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, um, which is traditionally supposed to be uh, an example of, of God's infinite power that, you know, God can create a universe out of nothing um, for no reason, just because arbitrarily, 
didn't need to, but did because you could say, oh, well, because of love, God wanted uh, creatures to experience love. But nonetheless, it's a, it's not something God needed to do. Whereas in Whitehead's view, God as primordial, as the um, primordial creature of creativity is perfect, but unconscious, Whitehead says. And the world was necessary, space and time and all of these finite perspectives realized by every creature from the photon on up to a human being and beyond. All of that space-time uh, process, the world was necessary for God to become conscious, for God to reflect on God's self through the experience of creatures. And so Whitehead says that God experiences all of our suffering, all of our joy, and somehow um, atones for it, makes it um, worthy of, of God's attention. <laughs> By, by holding it together in this, this conception of beauty, albeit tragic, nonetheless, beauty. And so um, it's a different, it's an unorthodox theology, mm -hmm. let's say. And one of the things Whitehead was, was really trying to overcome was this one-way relationship that exists, whether we're talking about Aristotle's conception of God as the prime mover, the unmoved mover, um, or more you know, Christian scholastic conceptions of God. Um, the idea would be there that, you know, God's love um, is of a different kind than our love for God in the sense that God doesn't, God isn't moved by our love, doesn't affect God, right? God is impassive because God is fully actual. And Whitehead's challenging this because he wants to be—he wants—he wants to establish a two-way relationship between the divine and the world, between God and creatures, such that, in some ways, God—God God needs creatures to be God's self. Uh, and so Whitehead will say, the power of God is the worship that God inspires, right? And that doesn't just mean humans worshiping God; like it, it could be sunflowers worshiping God, like, and in the way that, you know, the sunflower tracks the sun across the sky, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a form of contemplative prayer. Like Plotinus says, all things uh, are contemplating the one. Whitehead mm -hmm. is agreeing with that in a sense. All things are worshiping God, though they can also stray from that. And when they stray from that, God is diminished. And so Whitehead's God is um, creaturely in the sense that there is a real relationship two-way street between God and creatures such that um, for God to work in the world, for God's love to be effective in history, we've got to do it, right? It's not going to happen without us freely deciding to love one another, right? That's God's power through our freedom. Um, and, 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 there's through, a, yeah. and there's a continual sacrifice on his part. <clears throat> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. In some ways, you could say Whitehead's really, really taking the incarnation quite seriously. Mm -hmm. that, that's like a hint about the nature of the divine. Um, that's, you know, God's not off above, beyond somewhere, but actually here with us, vulnerable to our decisions and, and to, you know, the course of history. So it's, um, it's a more participatory form of 
theology, I guess I would say, which is not to say that there's not something beautiful about the traditional form. I mean, there's a reason that uh, it's endured for thousands of years, but, um, you know, Whitehead was a very harsh critic of what he perceived to be um, an idolatrous conception of God as um, made analogous to Caesar or an emperor, the king, mm -hmm. right? He's mm -hmm. like, God's not the king. God's a carpenter. God's, you know, a poor human being who suffers and dies on the cross, right? And yeah, he was reborn maybe, but um, it's a it's a more uh, human conception of the divine, you might say. Well, so, so in the in the more orthodox perspective, God would be both the transcendent and the and the imminent, the human, right. the, the with us. So does um, does Whitehead cut out that transcendent aspect? So this gets a little um, complicated, but he has, well, he has. This is super helpful because I, you know, I've wondered about these things, but it's really hard for me to figure it out without having to read all the books. And I don't have yeah. time to read all the books. So, so the, the short answer is yes, he, he includes the transcendent and imminent aspects of the divine. He calls the transcendent aspect, the primordial nature of God which is mostly what I've been describing as the, you know, the, the first creature of creativity that sets the tone. But um, this correspond to like the world soul or the, um, not exactly. It's, um, so th there's the primordial nature and what he calls the consequent nature, right? And so the primordial pole of God's nature would be, um, transcendent, perfect, the perfect realization, realization of, um, the best possible world, right? And you can say that that primordial nature of God is in a way before all finite creatures. The consequent nature of God is God's response to what all the finite creatures actually decide to do with, with that mirror that's held up to them by, by the primordial nature. So if the primordial nature is this, it's this initial aim, Whitehead says, that, that goads or, or lures all creatures toward what would be most beautiful. The consequent nature of God is God's response to how the creatures respond to that lure. Um, and so it's only in that consequent pull that God becomes conscious because God consciousness for white, it is a reaction to uh, what happens physically speaking. Um, consciousness doesn't exist on its own floating in its own domain as Descartes had it, right? It's, uh, it's responsive to the actual world, though it also has access to possibilities which haven't yet occurred. Um, I know this is <laughs> gay. Oh, no, but here I have to I have to ask a question, though. So, yeah. so if this uh, consequent nature is where the, the consciousness begins to develop, but it's developing out of um, aspects of creation that are being drawn up to that which is shown to it in the mirror. Yep. And some of those aspects of creation are like particles and molecules and however far along it's gotten before this consequent nature gains consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, I know that Chris Fields and Carl Friston and Mike Levin have been working on this perspective of physics that says that consciousness goes all the way down to the particle level. Yep. So, 
that would imply that either the consciousness was there at the particle level before the consciousness was there in the consequent nature of God, or that the particles were not at first conscious until the cons consequent nature of God developed consciousness, and then the particles and the molecules gained consciousness. So yeah, it might help here to consider a spectrum of consciousness that you know, it's not just an on off switch. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, fader, right? It's like mm -hmm. uh, a photon has a minimal awareness and not much in the way of freedom, right? It basically is like, you know, like a wavelength. It repeats, it's, it's highly repetitive. Um, whereas when you get, Although, to I have to tell you though, the other day I heard Wolfram talking with Jonathan. Have you ever listened to Stephen Wolfram? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wolfram was talking with Jonathan Gorard and one of them made the statement and neither one of them refuted it. I can't find the exact quote right now, but the, the statement was that a photon in its journey from the beginning of the universe sees all of the, in, in a moment, sees all of the universe in that moment of time. And in that sense <laughs> is more like the primordial, closer to the primordial nature of God and so less conscious in the sense that for so for from a whiteheadian point of view consciousness is all about limitation mm -hmm. and so as we become more conscious what's happening is we're focusing on what's important to the value we're trying to realize mm -hmm. and pushing everything else into the background and so you could say yeah a photon isn't actually moving through space because at the speed of light time itself doesn't even pass. And so the photon is sort of has this global perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And in that sense, at least if, if we think of consciousness as having to do more with finite realization and the selection of um, a particular, you know, area of experience to focus on, then uh, it, it would make more sense that the that the photons consciousness is minimal, you know, given given this idea from physics that it's got the global perspective. Well, okay, so this connects up for me with an idea that uh, Bishop Aaron also mentioned is that some people live where they're, they're always trying to grasp God, mm -hmm. trying to get hold of God, okay? And then other people are running away from him. And he said, we need to live in the space between that mm -hmm. trying to grasp God and running away from him. And that made me think about McGilchrist's uh, concept of the, the right and left hemisphere, that, that the left hemisphere is more like the, the focus that a bird can have when it's trying to get at that grain amongst the rocks on the ground. It has this hyper focus and it's going to go right for that piece of grain because that's what's important. I mean, perfectly limited down to that one thing, right? Yeah. And um, the right hemisphere is more the other aspect of the bird that is in constant awareness of everything that's around so that um, in case there is a predator that might be of a danger to the bird or or there may be other opportunities out there in the in this inchoate area that you're talking about. Oh. Um, and so it, that's almost like the two extremes, the the total awareness that has no focus because you haven't limited down to something that relates to whatever meaning is for you in that moment. And then the total focus where you're 
just down there at that, you're so limited to that one grain of sand that you can't see other possibilities that are around, right? So living in that in-between place. Yeah. So yeah. is that kind of the thing that you're talking about? In our relationship to the divine, like, yeah, I can see what um, Bishop Barron is suggesting there. Um, but, you know, you're, you're describing in a way Whitehead's own account of perception here, where in each moment of our experience, his word is prehending, which means feeling, basically, we're feeling, we're prehending, not only everything in our environment right now, but the entire history of the universe, up to this moment, we feel all of that, and it all coalesces or concresses, concrescence is another one of his terms, all of these prehensions from the past environment concress to give rise to our moment of experience, but our consciousness is only irradiating some small slice of that whole mm -hmm. history, right? Mm -hmm. If we took it all in, we wouldn't be conscious at all. Mm -hmm. um, and, but yeah, like you could say with McGillchrist, the, the right hemisphere has this less conscious global sensitivity and our left brain is focused on, well, what's important right now? Mm -hmm. um, and um, when we, when we shift from our understanding of perception and, and consciousness in each moment to, you know, how we relate to the divine, I think it's very easy for someone who's just been caught in the throes of a mystical experience where they recognized, as Eckhart said, the eyes through which I see God or the, the eyes through which God, God sees me. What is it? The eyes through which God sees me are, uh, I what is it? I'm, I'm stumbling over my words, but basically that when we see God, we are God seeing ourselves, right? I can't, uh, uh, achieve uh, Eckhart's um, poetic uh, verse at this moment, but it's very easy to get inflated after you've had such an experience. Doesn't mean it's not real, but um, each of us can access that mystical vision. And so if we grasp after it uh, and attempt to hold it and possess it for ourselves, that very quickly becomes akin to a kind of evil. Um, just rooted in the identification of our own ego with the divine, which is not at all um, what what Eckhart's or any any mystic's uh, point is in trying to give voice to these experiences. And so, you know, there's a way in which, uh, and and this is another Whiteheadian move, contrary to this um, sort of monarchic view of God and or heaven as a monarchy with God as king. We need to democratize the kingdom of heaven. Um, this is Alan, that's Alan Watts's phrase, but um, Whitehead, in a way, describes the divine as more of a community than a single being, in the sense that um, the entire democracy of fellow creatures, creatures to which we belong, um, is 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 God's God's body, if you want, mm -hmm. and. God's eyes are um, infinite. God has as many eyes as there are creatures experiencing uh, the universe. And so it's a, it's a more dem democratized view of, um, of the divine that would never allow uh, any one of us in particular to, to claim to possess the one ultimate 
truth about God's nature. So, I mean, it's my way of spinning in a Whiteheadian way what uh, Bishop Barron was trying to articulate. Well, it seems like that the scientific community would not be fearful of that viewpoint because the scientific community has the same concept of truth that hmm. the truth is something that we are continually seeking and you can get to a certain level of a certain understanding like maybe uh, classical classical physics and it it works and it's you know it it perceives what needs to be perceived for the moment it has predictive capacity and all of that mm -hmm. and then along comes um einstein's version of physics which contains that classic view and it, that classic view is still still works but einstein's view is just a little bit like meta above that you know a little bit higher level but that that's not the end there's there's another view above that another view above that because there's some sort of uh asymptotic aspect to the pursuit of truth you you can keep rising up 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 but you never really touch the the final truth because mm -hmm. really it's so far above us how can we possibly conceive it right yeah or as augustine said god is closer to myself than i am to myself in both both things are true simultaneously that's yeah. the very mysterious aspect of it is that both things are true so let me throw something else out to you that that i heard the other day well there's two things that really struck me um I was listening to some, I don't know how these things show up on my algorithm, but there's a guy named David Eagleman, who is a cognitive scientist. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Maybe he's a neuro, maybe he's a neuroscientist, a doctor of some sort. Mm -hmm. And he was having a conversation with a, a yogi named Sadhguru. And very interesting conversation. And David Eagleman was a, the consummate scientist, but asking really, really good questions and really listening. And um, at some point, he mentioned memory, and Sadhguru said, well, memory is an interesting thing. He said, um, you don't remember your great-great-great-grandfather, but his nose rests on your face. <laughs> yeah. So when he said that, I immediately thought about Michael Levin's cells. They know how to build that nose because... It's built into that DNA, which goes back through all the generations as far back as time goes, as far back as there were generations of DNA. That memory is all built into me, all of that memory. And so there's that memory that's in me. There's that memory that's in every cell in my body. And there's also the memory that is in me of all the experiences that I've had that are different than other people's, all the songs I've heard and books I've read and conversations I've had and relationships I've had and how all of those things have imprinted on me and have connected to everything that, um, that I've ever thought. And so when a new thought comes in or a new, a new perception comes in, it, it has more and more places to hook up inside of me. <laughs> so in a way I get the matrix of my being gets filled up over time with all this memory. Mm -hmm. So there's all that memory of my life there. And then, then there's 
everything that's happening to me at this moment in this computationally irreducible moment of combinatorial explosion. Mm -hmm. um, well, so one of the things that Wolfram talks about is that almost the entire universe is computationally irreducible. But there are these little slices of computational reducibility where we, because of the kind of observers we are, we see the patterns in the universe in such a way that we're able to come up with mathematical constructs and, and uh, physical laws that, that are orderly and that make sense in the midst of all this computational irreducibility. Mm -hmm. So those are the two thoughts that thought we might play with a little bit yeah i mean the whole computational perspective is it's so powerful and applicable uh and it's rooted in a in a conception of um information typically that i find somewhat slippery um you know you were talking about memory and dna and typically we think of dna as a kind of code that stores information which can be read out uh, by ribosomes into proteins um, and you know it's so tempting to use this software hardware analogy when talking about um, how cells read out their genetic code or um, when talking about consciousness and how neural activity might be related to uh, producing it and I think it's you know that's all fine but often there's a it's not always clear to me when we're talking metaphorically and when we're talking literally. Um, take DNA, for example, when we say that information is stored in the DNA and that the DNA is this sort of code for booting up the organism, as you know, some might, molecular biologists might say. I think that as a metaphor is kind of cool, but as in, when you really get into the biology of it, um, that's not at all how it works. Mm -hmm. Because memory is distributed um, throughout the cell, throughout the body, throughout the mm -hmm. environment. And so if we're going to talk about information being stored anywhere, we need to consider uh, that information as stored in a distributive, a distributed way, not only throughout the whole environment, which tells the, the, the cell which strain, which strings of DNA to, to activate, but the whole history of the development of that particular life form going back to the origin of life. And so mm -hmm. um, we sh I'm wary of taking the sort of um, computational information um, paradigm too literally. I, I certainly think it can be re revelatory of important insights, but- Well, uh, I think Wolfram is not talking about that kind of computation, which is what mm -hmm. makes it interesting. Um, right. So I have a, physicist friend on my channel who's been on a number of times and, and he is a mathematician and a physicist and a computer scientist. And so we talk about computation mm -hmm. and he says that he sees computation in a completely different way than um, that computation isn't necessarily code or um, yeah. So computation can be looked at as for example, musicians playing a piece of music, they're, they're reading a code, so to speak, but what they're really reading is what the musician put down on the paper, and they're simply executing the, the 
the music that was provided to them, but at the mm -hmm. same time, everything in them is also adding to what's being done so that at, at the end, the symphony is even more beautiful than it may have been in the imagination of the composer in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then for the viewers listening, they're also hearing through their own filter, their own lens, something that may be even more deeply meaningful to each one of them in their context than it was to the composer originally. Mm -hmm. and, and art works that way too, right? So um, yeah, computation is not necessarily a mathematical thing or a clinical thing or um, mm -hmm. computation can have a much deeper meaning than that. But, but for Wolfram, when he's talking about computation, he's not actually talking about programming something in. He's talking about, and I think it's such a beautiful idea. He probably doesn't see it this way, but for me, it's such a beautiful idea that there's one rule and this one rule um, is what, so I don't know if you've ever looked at his theory. A little bit. Yeah. The rule he had and. Yeah. So, uh, so there's, there's some sort of a, there are some nodes and some edges that make up space and the nodes actually are space. They are the atoms of space, which actually is what ends up being all matter. Mm -hmm. So space and matter are, are the same thing in his viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And then time updates those nodes. So if it sees the nodes in a certain configuration, there's one rule that says when you see that configuration, you change it to this one. Mm -hmm. So whenever that figuration shows up, you change it to this other one. And that's all that happens is con continual updating of events. Right. Well, when he first came up with the idea, there was one rule. And it's, so it's this beautiful picture, like this one rule can just keep populating and end up creating this amazing universe. Mm -hmm. And he actually can produce a pretty amazing universe out of this one rule. But then he realized there's some implications there that weren't really scientifically friendly. So then he came up with the idea, of there's all possible rules operating hmm. in all possible ways. Mm -hmm. And so at any point the and to me, he, he's not using the word choice, but there has to be a word choice. At any point, there's a choice of which rule to operate on which figure um, for the next move. So, so in that sense, it's a computation, the way my friend talks about it, as a symphony of choices over time. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of computation as a symphony of choices over time, and if those choices are made by the created entities... Mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. symphony of choices over time in that sense we could be a computational entity right but not in the sense of a code that's just working out on some sort of mechanical system yeah no i when i listen to wolfram talk about this it does resonate deeply with my whiteheadian sensibilities in the sense that you know whitehead's describing a network of events which uh, unfold through time in a, a cumulative and iterative way, right? And so there is a, a sense in which... Whitehead have... says that? Oh, yeah. Network. Oh, my gosh. This is so weird. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot like what, you know, Wolf... I haven't heard him mention Whitehead, but he mentions Leibniz a few times uh, in passing, and Whitehead and Leibniz have some deep... Um, uh, 
connections. So there's something to this and I, you know, I'm, I'm not quite, well, not at all <laughs> as mathematically minded uh, as, as Stephen Wolfram. So I haven't been able to really work out the details and see how uh, much this resemblance is actually how deep it goes but um well i know i ran into this guy who is taking wolfram and deeply simplifying him down into um visual images that to explain this the theory on a very simple basis so uh -huh. i can send you his work his videos are like seven minutes long and in okay. three of them he explains the whole thing but but uh, he's coalesced it right down to the nugget um Oh, great. Yeah, that'd be helpful. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It doesn't get into as much depth as Wolfram does. And usually Wolfram kind of avoids the theological implications, but he had a great conversation with Gregory Chaitin, a couple of conversations with Gregory Chaitin, who's a mathematician and also a bit of a philosopher. Mm -hmm. In fact, his wife is a, 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 I guess you could say a student or a follower of Paul Feyerabend. Okay. Uh -huh. And so oh, she has cool. a lot of philosophical ideas as well. Uh -huh. um, and they get into some of this in that conversation. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Neat. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Wow, this has been quite a trip. <laughs> yeah, sure has. Uh, you know, before we wrap up, let me get that Eckhart quote right. It's okay. the eye with which I see God is the same with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye is one and as one eye and one sight, one knowledge, one love. That's what Meister Eckhart said. Um, it's so, uh, what's the word? Um, it's such a elliptical structure that it's easy to get mixed up in one's words when you try. Yeah, to I'm glad you, I'm glad you did that. That's, that's great. That's really great. Well, I would love to talk again sometime if you ever yeah. have time. Um, this was really instructive. Yeah, uh, thanks, Karen, for uh, for having me and for asking such great questions and putting it into the context of uh, the journey you've been on to understand all these ideas and um, you know bring more beauty into the world. I'm I'm really enjoying looking at your. I assume those are your paintings in the background during our yeah, yeah. conversation yeah. here. So uh, yeah, yeah, lovely lovely to talk, and I uh, look forward to the next time. Okay, thank you much. Have a great right. day. Bye bye. You too.